Well, it's a great joy and treasure to be with you, All Saints Presbyterian Church, on this Sunday evening service. I want to thank the session here at All Saints for the privilege to open up God's Word with all of you. I'm saddened that my brother and dear friend Matt Bradley is not with you this night, as I know you are as well. I know you're prayerful with regards to his healing after this week's surgery, but what a treasure to be able to, in his stead, in his absence, to be able to be here to open up God's Word with you. And in your ongoing series through the book of Daniel. Now, I did check with uh, Mr. Bradley earlier this week regarding his own interest of whether he wanted to address this particular text with you or not. I didn't want to steal any of his thunder, anything that he had planned, but he gave me freedom to do my own study and reflection this week on Daniel chapter 10 and what a joy and a privilege it was to do so. A remarkable, mysterious, beautiful text that teaches us so many wonderfully practical lessons regarding the Christian life. And so let's turn our attention now to Daniel chapter 10. We'll pick up the reading in verse 1, and we'll carry to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar. And the word was true, and it was a great conflict. And he understood the word that had understanding of the vision. In those days, I, Daniel, was mourning for three weeks. I ate no delicacies, no meat or wine entered my mouth, nor did I anoint myself at all for the full three weeks. On the 24th day of the first month, as I was standing on the bank of the great river, that is the Tigris, I lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a man clothed in linen with a belt of fine gold from Euphaz around his waist. His body was like burl, and his face like the appearance of lightning, his eyes like flaming torches, his arms and legs like the gleam of a burnished bronze, and the sound of his words like a sound of a multitude. And I, Daniel, alone saw the vision, for the men who were with me did not see the vision, but a great trembling fell upon them, and they fled to hide themselves. So I was left alone and saw this great vision, and no strength was left in me. My radiant appearance was fearfully changed, and I retained no strength. And then I heard the sound of his words. As I heard the sound of his words, I fell on my face in deep sleep with my face to the ground. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said to me, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood trembling. And then he said to me, Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourselves before God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princesses, came to, and to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face towards the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. And then I opened my mouth and spoke. 
I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision, pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me. And he said, O man, greatly loved, fear not, peace be with you. Be strong and of good courage. As he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. And then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. And as for me in the first year of Darius the Mede, I stood up to confirm and strengthen him. And thus far the reading of God's holy word. There's a book lesser known by a very well-known author, author that as soon as I mention his name, you'll have one particular book that will come to mind. His name is John Bunyan. When I say the name John Bunyan, all of you think of that wonderful Christian classic, The Pilgrim's Progress. But what you might not think of was another very well-known book by John Bunyan in his own day called The Holy War. The Holy War is another allegorical novel that John Bunyan wrote that depicts a fictional people and illustrates a Christian spiritual journey. That should sound somewhat familiar to Pilgrim's Progress. The Holy War is the story of a town, a town by the name of Mansoul, a town that is dedicated to King El Shaddai. And this town was deceived by a wicked ruler named Diabolus who spurns the rule of King El Shaddai and brings the whole town into ruin, into sin and corruption. And it won't be until Prince Emmanuel comes, El Shaddai's son, and he rises to power that Mansoul, the whole town and city, will be brought back to glory. Now, as I tell you the story of the Holy War, there's not much spoiler alerts in that story, Because as I told it, you thought to yourself, well, that's really the whole story of the gospel, isn't it? The story of the creation of a world that has gone bad by the deception of a serpent, a diabolus in this particular case. But there is a son who has come to redeem the world and to bring it back from its ruin and destruction and to restore it to glory. In many ways, that is the story, isn't it, of the whole of the Bible. It's the story of God's people. It's the story of every individual Christian's life. Now, in many ways, Daniel 10 is in some ways a synopsis of the whole of the Bible, and in some ways it's the story of John Bunyan's holy war. Because in this particular chapter, we see in first hand that one has come, a servant of the Lord, in order to rescue the people of Israel and even Daniel himself, and to bring them through the travails of their day, to restore the fortunes and the glory of the people of Israel that had long been lost through the siege of Babylon. This particular chapter actually invites us into peeling back the veil of what we might call spiritual warfare. The fact that underneath 
all of what happens with men and nations, all of what happens in the ups and downs of human existence and history, underneath it all is a battle, a spiritual battle, a war underneath all wars, a holy war wherein a prince, a great warrior will come on the behalf of God's people, and he will ensure their redemption and their victory. As we reflect on this wonderful chapter in Daniel chapter 10 tonight, I want to simply look with you at just a couple of practical instructions, a few things that we can take home from this mysteriously beautiful and marvelous text of Scripture. I want you to consider these two points this evening. Number one, that we as God's people must personally enlist ourselves in the fight of faith. That we as God's people must personally enlist ourselves in the fight of faith. And secondly, we must see tonight that we must personally encounter the God who fights for us. We must personally encounter the God who fights for us. So notice in those two points, there's something for us to do. We must be enlisted in the fight of faith, but our faith and strength is not in ourselves. It's in the God who fights for us. Now this chapter, if, as you've been working your way through the book of Daniel, you probably noticed that this chapter begins, like many of the chapters in the latter half of Daniel, it begins with a vision, and it begins with the presence of a king. Notice that very first line, in the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia, a word was revealed to Daniel. Over and over in this book, there are marks with regards to timing, with regards to kings, with regards to vision, and each of them are very important. In fact, this one in Daniel chapter 10 harkens all the way back to the book of Ezra. I'm sure you've been referencing Ezra throughout the course of your study in Daniel because the history of Ezra overlaps directly with the prophecy of Daniel. And you can see that very first line in Daniel 10 is referencing Ezra chapter 1 verses 2 through 4 that tells us that Cyrus, the king of Persia, has welcomed back the people of Israel after years of exile in Babylon to restore the fortunes of Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple, and to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem. The people of Israel are invited home. Now that moment in the nation of Israel's life could not have been more exciting. It was what they had been looking forward to since the moment of their exile, when they were run out of Israel and they saw the Jerusalem uh, sieged and destroyed. They were anxious to be able to come back and eager to be able to rebuild that which was lost. And now God is using this pagan King Cyrus as a means by which to bring his people back and to restore the fortunes of Jerusalem. So to say there would be a buzz in the air as they begin to head back home and to restore those fortunes is a major understatement. The, the only problem is as they started going back and started rebuilding, they ran into a snag. The very first year in Jerusalem was a wonderful year where under the leadership of Zerubbabel, Israel had been rebuilding the temple and the city wall of Jerusalem. They were right on track. But in year two, they ran into this problem where other nations were wanting to help and contribute to the people of Israel, building this Jerusalem wall back, building the precincts of the city and restoring the city. Around 535, 536 B.C., they were asking to partner with Israel in this, and they actually responded to these overtures of partnership by saying, no, 
We don't want the partnership of the nations which are around us. This is the work that the Lord God has given to His people to accomplish. And when they said no, thanks but no thanks, of the invitation of these pagan nations, well, let's just say the pagan nations didn't take it so well. These countries became angry at the people of Israel and began to appeal to Cyrus that he would stop the rebuilding in Jerusalem. And they, and they wanted to see Israel actually in many ways punished for the fact that they didn't welcome their generosity in helping them rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And Cyrus actually listened to those complaints and ultimately stood in the way of the people of Israel being able to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And all construction by the second and the third year of the return to Jerusalem was off. And now we have Daniel entering here into Daniel chapter 10, hearing the news a long way away off, he's still in Babylon at the time, that construction has stopped in Israel and he mourns. That's what he tells us in Daniel 10. He mourns. He grieves. He sees that what started out so well has come to a screeching halt. And he is concerned that the people of Israel will forsake the call which God has placed upon them to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. And so what does Daniel do? Well, he does what Daniel has done. We've known Daniel from the very beginning to be a man who devotes himself to prayer. A man who devotes himself to fasting. A man who falls on his face before the Lord. Do you remember three different times a day in morning, noon, and night? seeking and interceding on the behalf of his people, Israel. And he does that here again. We see that Daniel personally enlists himself in the fight of faith in the midst of another trial for the people of Israel. Now you can imagine just how despairing that moment would be. So excited after so many years, we're back in the land. And now all construction is halted. Our enemies are once again aligned against us. Just when we thought we were in the clear, here is another trial, another barrier to the mission and the advance of the kingdom of God. And so what does Daniel do? Well, does he enlist an army to go lay low all of these enemies of God? No. Where does he go? He goes to his knees. He knows that this fight is not a fight of, of swords and spears. This is a spiritual fight. This is a fight of faith. And you never fight a fight of faith with the worldly weapons of the earth. You always fight the fight of faith with spiritual devotion, with fasting, with repentance, with prayer. This is the work of, of Daniel. He is one who stands with people, the people of Israel in the midst of their opposition and persecution from outside forces. Though far away, he doesn't say to himself, there's nothing I can do. Instead, he intercedes on the behalf of God's people. He prays for them. Do you know, prayer is maybe the most central work that God ever calls us into as the Christian church. We tend to think that prayer is actually something to do when everything else fails. But when we look at the Scripture, prayer is actually, as Oswald Chambers says, the greater work. John Bunyan, the very writer who I mentioned at the beginning who wrote The Holy War, also wrote an incredible book on prayer. One of the interesting things he says in that, in that book on prayer is that we, uh, there's often going to be things for us to do after we pray, but he says there's never anything for us to do before we pray. 
Prayer is the very first thing that we are called to do in the fight of faith. To humble ourselves before the Lord. To know that for His mission to go forward, it's not going to be by the strength of men and nations. It's not going to be through our smarts and ingenuity. It's not going to be in our strategy and our tactics. It's going to be by using the means of grace which God has provided. Daniel shows us here that we must enlist ourselves in the fight of faith through devotion to our God in prayer. You know, I wonder too, one of the lessons in here is just thinking through those even right now across the world who well, are engaged in the fight of faith. Those who are right now persecuted in all, all over um, the, the known world today. I was reading a statistic in Pew Research not long ago that 5,800, according to the account of Pew Research, were, were, were martyred this last year for their faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. 5,800. Countries like Afghanistan and Iraq and many others named on that list of places where, uh, where it, is, it is not safe to be a Christian, not safe to do the work of, of, of faith and to walk out the calling of what it means to listen to the voice of Christ. We might say to ourselves, you know, we're far away from that. Thank, thank the Lord. We don't have to deal with that. No opposition tonight as we gather at All Saints Presbyterian Church in Brentwood. Praise the Lord for that. What can we do about persecution from afar? You know what you can do? You can pray. You can pray. And you might say to yourself, that's not much. It's not what the Scripture says. It's not what the Scripture says. Daniel could have said, you know, I can't do anything. I'm a long way away. Oh, I hope they figure it out. hope construction gets going. No, that's not what Daniel does. Daniel enters the fight of faith, and how does he do it? On his knees. Might it be that tonight, the beginning of a new work of prayer in your life might happen across the world, recognizing that your brothers and sisters, ones in which you'll be with for all eternity before the face of the Lord Jesus Christ, are today laboring in persecution and struggle for the faith. You know what they need from us? They need us to pray. Daniel teaches us tonight that we must in, personally enlist ourselves in the fight of faith. But secondly, we must also encounter that the God, personally encounter the God who fights for us. You know, one of the, the remarkable parts about this particular chapter is this, this looming figure that shows up in this text. You caught it, right? This figure whose um, eyes, we're told, are like flaming torches, who has a belt of gold, who, who shines like lightning and, and, and gleams in burnished bronze, who's when he speaks, his voice is like a multitude. Um, this incredible description echoes the descriptions we see in the book of Revelation about the glorious ascended Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, some have argued that this is actually a pre-incarnate display of the Lord Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Other scholars argue that this is one of the cherubim that has come as a messenger uh, from the very throne room in, in order to encourage Daniel in the midst of his, uh, of his prayers. But we don't know exactly who the identity of this figure is, but one of the things we see immediately that happens to Daniel is that when he prays, he begins to encounter this glorious figure and the glory of God lays him low. We've got to encounter the glory of God. That's where it begins. You know, that's really the beginning place of the Christian life is coming into the glory of God. And you know what happens when we come into the glory of God, when we see His shining, when we see His beauty, when we see His majesty, when we're overcome? You know, it's what happens to Daniel in this passage. Did you see what happens? He hits the ground. 
He's, he's drained of all of his strength. He has nothing to say. He's a lot like Isaiah when he, when he goes into the throne room of heaven and he sees the train of God's glory and he realizes that he is a man of unclean lips. He's overwhelmed with the glory of God. That's the beginning of the personal encounter of what must take place in the life of every single one of us as we come to the Lord, both in prayer and in devotion, is that we've got a glimpse into the glory of God. We must personally encounter the God who will fight for us. And we've got to know that He's powerful. We've got to know that He's glorious. We've got to have our faith and trust built in Him. And the display of this figure who has come, whether this throne room messenger or the pre-incarnate Christ, you know what this messenger has come to do? It's come to show us the glory of God. That you have a power that is stronger than Babylon. You have a power that's stronger than those pagan nations that are all around you that look so menacing and look so threatening that they, they to themselves believe that they were touting all of the power. And, and, and yet this figure shows up and says to us, listen, I've come because I want you to know there's something more powerful than those pagan nations. That in the midst of the attack of the people of God, we listen to your prayers and we want to reveal to you Glory, the glory that is indeed of God Himself. We need to see the glory of God, don't we? We need to know that we've got a God who's powerful and who's strong and mighty. But when we personally encounter this God, His glory would be enough to undo us and maybe even lead us into despair if we didn't see another thread in the text. Did you notice there in verse 10, when this being speaks to Daniel, notice what it says. It says, O Daniel, man greatly loved, Understand the words I speak to you and stand upright, for now I have been sent to you. Did you catch that? Oh, Daniel, man greatly, greatly loved. You know, when we personally encounter our God in, in faith in the Scriptures and we see Him in His glory and we're undone by that glory, you know what the next thread we need to hear from Him? We need to hear greatly loved. We don't want to be on the wrong side of this glorious God, this, this man of, of might, this, this cherubim and messenger from the throne room. We need to hear that we are a people who are greatly loved. This holy and power and glorious God of the universe who rules over men and nature's, nations reaches down and we're told here very intimately touches Daniel. Multiple times in this text, he touches Daniel. And when he touches Daniel, he says to him, you're greatly loved. The encounter of the God who fights for us is a God who's full of power and strength, but he's a God who loves us. He's a God who's on our, on our side. You know, there's nothing more scary, is it, than meeting a God of great power and him not being on your side. But there's nothing more assuring than meeting a God of great power and glory and knowing that he's on your side. You see, that's what Daniel is learning here. That this is a God of great power and glory, but it's a God who's loving towards him. A God who cares for him. A God who, a God who listens to him. Now don't you see the story of redemption unfolding here in Daniel chapter 10? Isn't that what we need? A God of glory and a God of love simultaneously coming together to encounter him, to be encouraged and strengthened in the fight of faith. That's a God that will lead you to prayer. That's a God that will lead you to hope. That's Daniel in this passage. And what we find in the third place is that this God who fights for us not only is a God of glory, not only a God of love, but He's a God who cares. He's a God who cares because He's a God who listens. Over and over in this text, we see, I heard your prayer. 
I heard your words. Your words didn't fall on deaf ears. It, it's not as if when you pray, they bounced off the ceiling and the walls. They never made it into the throne room of heaven. No, you know why I'm here, Daniel? You know why I, the messenger, that this potentially pre-incarnate vision of Christ has shown up to Daniel? You know why he's come? He tells us, because you prayed. Because we heard your words. Because you prayed. Fear not, Daniel, from, from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God. Your words have been heard, and I have come because of your words, he says. Well, what a remarkable encouragement it is, right? That this God who is powerful and glory and strong and who loves us is a God who listens. You know, he knows in the quiet uh, of your heart, in the, in the four walls of your home, the, the, the struggles and the fights and the difficulties and the battles. He, he knows the history and the burdens that we carry. He, he knows those in whom we look to, where our heart breaks, where it doesn't seem like we can make any change. And it's as if Daniel here is being assured as someone far from where the battle is, thinking that maybe he cannot help, God comes to him in glory, in love, and with care. And he says there's reason to hope. There, there's, reason, there's reason to hope. You see, in all of this, what we're actually learning is that there is a spiritual reality behind the world in which we live. There's a spiritual reality behind the world in which we live. Do you know when, when you're watching the news or you're seeing the, uh, the, the world events unfold, you, you're, you're, not, you're not really seeing the whole story. In fact, you're, it's like that proverbial iceberg illustration. You're seeing just the tip of things, but actually what's really going on in the world is underneath all of that, in spiritual realities. It's that world that we're walking into in Daniel chapter 10 to, to be reminded that, that it, it's, not, it's not the Vladimir Putins of the, of the world. It, it's... it's it's not the Joe Bidens of the world. It's, it's, it's the messengers of the throne room of heaven. It's Christ who's on the throne. That's what's, that's what's pulling the strings of the world. That's what's really where the battle is actually faced. There's a battle underneath the battle. There's a holy war happening. And we don't fight a holy war by taking up the armaments of the world. No, we do so by encountering personally the God of glory. The God of love, the God who cares on our knees, prayerfully before us, answering our heart's cry. It's a reminder as we are in Ephesians over at Cornerstone on Sunday morning right now. It reminded me just this afternoon, thinking a little more about this text of Ephesians 6.12. You know it. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, do we? But against rulers, against authorities, against powers and principalities over this present darkness. Uh, you know, isn't that true when we look through the pages of Scripture and we see the ultimate clash of Scripture? The ultimate clash that was spoken of back in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, that there will be a seed of the woman and there's a seed of a serpent. And yes, that, that seed of the, uh, of the woman will one day indeed crush the head of the serpent. And that that great cosmic clash was not a clash of men and nations. It wasn't a matter of, of flesh and blood, was it? It was a spiritual battle. It was a spiritual battle between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. You know, it's that battle that was faced by Christ, who is that seed of the woman. Who is that fulfillment of the seed of the woman, who on the cross, didn't he, 
that clashed even with that power of, of darkness, receiving the, the fullness of the charge of our sin, and there receiving the unmitigated wrath of God for us on the, on the cross, uh, drinking that cup of wrath all the way to, to the bottom. That clash is actually the, the solution to all of the clashes that go on in the world today. And that same Christ who is victorious over sin and death for us on the cross is the Christ that's on the throne today, you know. He's the Christ who stands, we're told, to live and intercede for you and me. He's the Christ who's coming back, who will bring everything to rights. He's the only one that will occupy the throne forever. Not, not Cyrus, not Nebuchadnezzar. It will be Jesus. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, whether willingly or unwillingly, that He is Lord. That He is Lord. Daniel 10 is giving us that kind of encouragement. Let's encounter this, this prayerful, with our hearts submitted to Him, the glorious, powerful God who loves us, who listens to us, who cares for us, who fights the fight of faith in and through your prayers. Even the Lord Jesus Christ coming now on the behalf of you as people. Let's pray to that end.